Hey, what's happening, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Rapping with a Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Perkelhammer. So today I have the pleasure of welcoming um, Gene Devalier. I'm, I'm, I'm all messed up here because my keyboard is sticking. I can't type. And now I erased a whole bunch of stuff in my, uh, my little script here to read. So I'm all screwed up tonight. Apologize for that. But uh, So Gene is there with us from Reef Labs. Gene, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, um, all right. So background on Gene. Gene is the co-owner of Reef Labs, Inc., a Tampa, Florida-based water analysis laboratory that performs analytical testing, including ICP water tests for saltwater tanks and aquaculture systems. Gene is passionate about everything related with science and technology. And you can see a signature in every aspect of Reef Labs, Inc., the ICP lab aims to provide its customers with exceptional results and proven successful practices. But before we start chatting with Gene, I want to thank the sponsors for this show, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate these companies supporting the live stream, and I also appreciate all you folks tuning in out there. Please don't forget to hit that like button, subscribe to the channel, all that jazz. And uh, as always, I always encourage you folks to Drop some questions and comments in the chat. I see there's a whole bunch of uh, folks tuning in. So, gee, man, um, tell us a little bit about your background. You know, how long have you been in the uh, in the reef tank and uh, aquaculture world? What's what's your journey been like? Sure. Well, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, I had uh, freshwater tanks. Actually, my my parents when they first married. Uh, uh, I don't know how they got into it. I don't remember the story anymore, but they used to actually uh, raise uh, freshwater angelfish and they'd sell them to local fish stores and whatnot. So uh, when I got old enough to, you know, to take care of a tank, they, they got me interested in the hobby through that. And, and I had freshwater tanks uh, most of my, you know, uh, pre-college years. And then um, after I got out of college, it uh, wasn't, uh, you know, too long after that. It would, I guess it would have been in the mid-90s. I had my first uh, saltwater reef tank. Quite a bit different than they are now, but uh, it was funny. I found some pictures uh, uh, just a few weekends ago that I didn't even know I had. And uh, it was interesting to compare uh, what the hobby was like then versus what it is oh, now. Oh, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it has. And and, uh, and I've been in and out of it since then, you know, as time and, and whatnot uh, permitted. But uh, I got re-interested in it um, uh, a few years ago, uh, kind of in an intense way. And... Uh, and that's ultimately what uh, you know. What led to, to Reef Labs um, is uh, you know we uh, you have a lot more to work with now, and you have a lot more available in terms of of uh, variety of livestock and corals and whatnot. And with that comes all the challenges. And uh, uh, so that's uh, it was through experience and pain really that uh, uh, we got to, to founding Reef Labs and, and providing that service to, to the hobby. So how long has uh, Reef Labs been around? So Reef Labs, uh, I mean, as a concept, um, probably about a little over three years, three and a half years, we started to talk about it. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, it was, it was really in response to some of the challenges that, um, that I ran into. My uh, brother-in-law also is, uh, is very avid in the hobby, and, and, you know, we used to get together and talk a lot and share our frustrations and our pains. And he had a buddy who also was, uh, you know, involved in it. And, um, you know, as we started to try to solve those, uh, those issues, uh, we realized that uh, we didn't really have uh, a, what we considered to be an adequate tool to, to address some of the issues that we were encountering. 
And through trial and error, we, we, you know, we all discovered the importance of trace elements and how difficult it was to kind of get a handle on that. And um, that led to that concept three and a half years turning into a reality about two years ago. And, and we spent uh, a year uh, in R&D. Um, so, you know, I don't want to jump, uh, you know, jump the gun if you have other questions, but, uh, you know, ICP is, uh, uh, ICP OES is a very broad piece of equipment. It can be used in a lot of industries. There are thousands of, of parameters um, that way you can construct a measurement method. And uh, we wanted to make sure that we really optimized the instrument to the task at hand. And it took, uh, it took a year to do that of, of uh, fairly intensive uh, work. Um, you know, with uh, with Chris Meckley at uh, ACI, and also with uh, Chris Wood at Captivate, uh, they were they were integral um, uh, partners in in developing a, a successful method for for doing the testing. So that's kind of the in a nutshell history. <laughs> can Can you talk more about that partnership in terms of with ACI and and um, Captivate Aquaculture with with Chris Wood? I mean, I've I've had both of those uh, fellows on um, Chris a few times, um, Meckley. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like how you guys got on my radar is through Meckley because he yep. uses you guys, um, you know, exclusively. And, and I know you work with, uh, Chris Wood. So can you, can you kind of like talk a little bit about how you guys all kind of ended up putting your, uh, you know, kind of all the eggs in the, in the basket there and, and, you know, had this, uh, partnership. Sure. Sure. Well, I guess, as I mentioned, you know, my brother-in-law and I, we were, we really talked about this for a while and, and we had, um, we had a pretty well-defined plan of what we thought we would do if we were going to launch this. And I started when after I met uh, Chris Meckley, um, yeah, we we got to talking about different topics, different frustrations, different challenges, and and uh, you know, finally we we got into the uh, you know my brother-in-law Nathan and I had gotten to the point of frustration where we decided that we were <laughs> we were ready to to pull the trigger on this. And I told Chris one day, I said, you know, uh, I said, I'm, I'm going to get an ICPOES and, and I'm going to, you know, solve these problems. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he kind of looked at me funny and he didn't say much. And, and Chris didn't think, say much. That's that's rare. Yeah. Well, I, I think he, he didn't believe. <laughs> I know he's watching right now, so no pun intended. <laughs> he thought, he thought oh, this guy is, he's got to be full of it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I told him, I said, yeah, I said, probably around, you know, November, December. And I think this was in October, maybe that he and I had this conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, so December rolls around and I said, hey, Chris, I said, uh, the machine, the machine's in the lab and, you know, we're going to start working on it. And I think it was at that point that he, he, he realized that I, I was serious and um, he got intensely interested. I mean, I think he was at one point probably more excited about it than I was, um, you know, because Chris is, he, he's ruthlessly, um, you know, pragmatic about uh, the way he, he takes care of his coral and his systems. And uh, he, he approaches it very scientifically and very measured. And, um, you know, he's very careful to, to uh, observe what he's doing and, 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 you know, adjust according to his observations. So uh, this was a, you know, this was exciting to him because, uh, you know, we were, you know, 40 minutes from him and, and uh, I could go and, and pick up a sample there and he could have results a few hours later. And, um, you know, so we, we went through a, many, many months of uh, testing his systems weekly and, um, you know, observing where things didn't make sense uh, or observing where we weren't getting the, um, the accuracy and, or precision results that we were interested in getting. Um, a lot of that had to do with variety of systems, you know, um, uh, ICP uh, OES is subject to interferences 
from different concentrations of elements. And uh, when you, you know, take water from different systems, diverse systems, sometimes you run into issues uh, due to those interferences. So using his systems really helped us build a robust method that um, was resilient to uh, those types of interferences that you might run into uh, from sampling a lot of different sources. And um, he then introduced me to Chris Wood. And, uh, you know, at that time, um, ACI was using um, some of... Um, uh, some ideas from Chris Wood and, and some formulations and whatnot. And um, uh, so this was an opportunity to kind of work with, with Chris Wood and, and learn what he was he was doing. And, and we gained a lot of insight of, uh, into what he thought was important um, from a biological standpoint, um, you know, in terms of what, what trace elements and their effects and whatnot. Um, and, of course, we were also able to more closely observe what those additives were doing in ACI systems by having these really instant uh, feedback to, to what was actually happening with the concentrations of those elements as, as they were being added into ACI systems. Uh, and that was invaluable as well, too. Um, so really, uh, it was a, I think uh, we all benefited uh, and still benefit from, from that collaboration. And, and we're still actively um, you know, using uh, um, the benefits of uh, collaborating and using each other's resources to continue to develop all of our products better. And it's been very successful. Um, so just a couple of uh, things, a uh, funny thing here is, I, I think I mentioned at the beginning, I'm having problems with my uh, keyboard. It looks like I cannot type an A. So um, I'm going to be a little challenged in terms of my uh, chat ability uh, tonight in terms of typing in comments and all that stuff. But um, yeah, so... A uh, quick thing, uh, Gene, in terms of before we dive even deeper into this stuff, for those folks not in the know, can you explain them what uh, ICP stands for and, and also explain the uh, the difference between ICP uh, OES and ICP MS? Sure. So ICP literally uh, stands for inductively coupled plasma. And uh, that's a... Um, quite a concept actually and um, you know to, to maybe break it down into something that's a little more um, bite-sized uh, if you're going to analyze things elementally right and when I say elementally um, I'm differentiating that versus looking at, at things that are molecules right so elements are single atoms you know one type a molecule of course is something like phosphate or, or nitrate where you've got um, multiple elements uh, that are bonded in some way so if you're going to look at things elementally um, that's always going to involve uh, some energy uh, to break the bonds because most uh, elements want to form some form of bond with whatever happens to be present. So in water, um, you've got metals and, you know, you've got sodium chloride in there and, and we talk about them as if they were independent, but they're not actually. Um, they're ions, meaning that they carry um, some form of uh, electrostatic charge, you know, for being a little oversimplified. But so they're they're forming complexes and they're 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 not attached um, um, they're not freely floating in, in, in solution they're actually uh, forming loose bonds with other other ions in, in the water so in order to break those bonds you have to use a lot of energy and a lot of heat um, so ICP stands for inductively coupled plasma because it's a means of, of um, coupling energy into a plasma to produce a lot of heat. Um, so it's uh, around 6,000, 6,500 degrees is the, the temperature of the plasma. And um, that's, um, that plasma, you, you, use, you, you inject an atomized uh, form of, of your water sample into that plasma where it then breaks apart uh, the constituents of your sample into individual ions that we can then analyze. Um, the ODS part uh, stands for optical emission 
spectroscopy. And what that tells us, uh, so spectroscopy in general is a word in the scientific community that refers to uh, being able to differentiate something um, via a spectrum, right? So it could be uh, differences in mass, it could be differences in energy, and it could be difference in, in, in frequencies of light or uh, frequencies of radio waves. All of those are, are forms of spectroscopy. <laughs> what we're doing is we're looking at the light um, that those ions um, emit um, when they're settling back, when they're cooling off, right, from the, from the plasma. Um, so the plasma heats them up, adds energy, and then at some point they have to relax back down into the cooled state. And when they do that, they release some of that energy in the form of light. And the frequency of that light is unique to each element. Um, so that light passes into the spectrometer, and then we're able to then see uh, a full spectrum of all of those uh, wavelengths of light that are emitted by the sample. And we're also able to measure the amplitudes of each one of those individual wavelengths very precisely. Uh, and that's what allows us then to determine what's in the sample and approximately what amount of it. Um, so ICPMS is a similar thing, but it uses mass instead of, uh, instead of light. And actually, to be entirely correct, um, it uses a, the ratio of the mass to the charge of the ion. Um, and that's important in, you know, in this particular uh, way of, of measuring the elements. But it, it, the, the big idea is that it uses mass instead of, of light, you know, without getting into the minutiae. So do you guys do well, a lot of that sort of testing, or is it pretty much the uh, OES is, is what you're doing for uh, hobbyists? So the OES is, is currently what we have available for hobbyists. Um, we're evaluating the uh, benefit and the applicability of using MS uh, in the field. Um, MS is a, is a more um, accurate method. So uh, OES can reach down into the parts per billion, but when you start to get into the low parts per billion, um, it's, uh, you, you encounter difficulties and the, the measurements aren't as precise. Um, MS can get into parts per trillion and actually uh, below parts per trillion um, in, in certain uh, use cases. So it's uh, considerably more uh, accurate in that sense. Um, but the question is, uh, that we're trying to answer is, uh, how valuable is that to our community, right? Mm -hmm. And is it worth the additional cost? Um, so there's a question there, you know, that we haven't answered for ourselves yet. And we're still, uh, you know, we're still studying that and, and trying to determine what the benefit would be. And, um, you know, with all of these products like this, um, you know, I could, I could construct a, an ICP OES test for saltwater that, that, that um, you know, costs $500 to do per test, right? It would be extremely accurate, um, but that, that's out of the reach of what most people in the hobby would, would be willing to spend. So like all things, you have to balance, uh, you know, the cost of providing the service versus the benefit that it provides. And it, it has to be a, you know, there has to be a, a, a proposition there that makes sense to a hobbyist. So when we look at these products, um, you know, that's what we're looking at is how much can we invest into the cost of performing the test and still keep the product affordable, um, you know, for, for a hobbyist to, to use it. And uh, we also have uh, other types of equipment in the lab too. We have something that's called a uh, LC-MSMS, um, which is used for molecular analysis. Um, so that kind of goes above the, the elemental side and you can actually look at things uh, like nitrates and phosphates. You can look at amino acids, you can look at um, proteins, um, you can look at uh, contaminants, uh, chemicals, uh, toxins, pesticides, um, all those types of things. 
but um, you know, there again, it's it's a question of can we bring something to market that uh, that makes sense for a hobbyist and it's and it's at the right price point. All right, a couple of questions. Um, one is anybody else doing the uh, the MS at this point in terms of that measurement? Other um, companies that are offering ICP testing. Yes, I believe there's at least one. There might be two. Uh, I think there's one U.S.-based company, and I believe there's maybe one in Europe uh, that's that's doing it currently that I'm aware of. There may be others. Those are just the ones that I'm aware of. So is, is it a matter of like um, having a, a lower standard error with a uh, MS test versus an OES test? Is, is that what it kind of comes down to? It's going to be more reliable in terms of the results or more precision? So an MS is generally more precise. Um, when you get into those uh, trace elements, right? And you're talking about the macros and the minors, um, there's probably not too much of a, a difference from a practical standpoint. And when I say practical standpoint, I mean as far as what a decision that a hobbyist is going to make uh, or even an aquaculture facility or somebody in the professional field is going to make is probably not going to be influenced very much by the difference in precision between OES and MS when you're talking about minors um, and certainly not with macros. Um, so that's part of you know, part of our internal uh, debate as to as to where the you know where the value point is uh, with those. So really, you're you're looking at the trace elements, right? And um, there again, uh, you know, you have to ask that question: uh, Is the improvement in accuracy really is it really going to change the decision um, that a hobbyist or or a professional user of the test might make? Right. Uh, evaluating the data. And that's not clear. You know, we're, we're still trying to compile some research on that. And part of that involves understanding what some of those uh, limits of, and effects are of some of those trace elements that uh, um, I'm sure we're probably going to talk about <laughs> in, in some minutes. Oh, for sure. So, so Gene, what were um, some of the big reasons why you um, guys started this service? You know, what was missing from the other services out there that offer ICP testing that you thought that you could um, kind of fill the gap? You know, I know you were talking about uh, working with Meckley and and uh, and Chris Wood, but, um, you know, what were the, some of the big reasons? What were, what were some of the things that, that you guys, uh, you know, had seen with ICP, current ICP testing services that um, didn't seem to, um, you know, um, really have everything that you, you, know, you guys thought they should have? Sure. You know, I think the, the main issue was that, you know, all of us in, in my group, you know, my brother-in-law and I and, and some of our friends were all experiencing um, a common or similar set of problems, right? And um, I started using um, ICP analysis uh, in general, I'm not referring to a specific vendor, but I started doing ICP analysis on my water samples um, as, a try, as a means to try and understand what was happening, right? Because clearly there were there were changes happening in our tanks that we couldn't um, correlate to any of the things that we could measure with consumer kits. And, uh, you know, a scientific background that bothered me, uh, you know, <laughs> at the core. Right. So, uh, so I wanted to find out why. And, uh, you know, we started to, to explore what, what some of the, the available uh, kits were that were out there. And I think I tried um, all of the ones that were accessible at the time. And uh, I, I just found that, um, the, the results that I was getting were not enough for me to be able to identify the problems and bring about stability. You're, you're talking about other ICP tests? Correct. And, uh, you know, and again, and I don't, you know, I, I want to be clear here because I don't, you know, I'm not interested in bashing anybody. Everybody has their business. We can, we can leave the names out. Right. We'll leave the names <laughs> out. But also, I mean, just from a, you know, uh, uh, being impartial about this. 
like I said, you know, you can you can do a, a real cheap, quick test with ICPOES just like you can with anything else, but you're gonna you're gonna have to pay for that in some way in terms of a lack of accuracy or inconsistency. Um, the more time and resources you put into sample prep and, and how the machine is configured and how you maintain the machine and the standards that you use, um, the gases and you know all the things that go into it, the more money you put into that, the better results you're going to get with that equipment. And of course, you know that, that cost has to be covered by you know the, your business model as well too. So um, you know we just found that that for what we were interested in doing, we couldn't achieve that with the with the trade-offs that uh, you know were being made with the existing kits on the market. So our you know that that's what prompted us really to do this because we couldn't find a solution. And uh, you know we knew there was one. I mean I uh, I didn't have any doubt in that. It was just a matter of getting the right data and getting the right metrics to be able to solve these problems. Um, so a, a couple of questions from the viewers here um, from Peter T. Does Gene have any distributions in Canada? Should we recommend to local um, local fish stores to get in contact? Is that uh, possible in Canada, Gene? Uh, you know, we are looking into it. We've had several requests, and absolutely, if someone is interested, we'd love to hear from them, and uh, that just helps us uh, gauge the you know the amount of interest and, and incentivizes us even more to find a solution for it. So yeah, absolutely, if anybody's interested. Please reach out to us. We're happy to, you know, get the details and uh, you know try to find out a way that we can and do something for them. Um, Uptown Reefkeeper had a question about the turnaround time, and I saw that uh, Chris uh, responded that uh, it's, it's anywhere between one to six days. What 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 can one expect, um, Gene? In terms of does it depend closer you are to Florida, the quicker turnaround time you're going to get. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we use USPS uh, for deliveries for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, it provides a, a pretty affordable option for, uh, for hobbyists in terms of, of shipping. We include the cost of uh, return shipping with our kits, and we also want it to be easy. You know, uh, sometimes you, you know, it's not convenient to go to UPS or or somewhere to you know FedEx or drop off a, a package. You know, it's nice just to be able to have your mail carrier pick it up. Um, so all around, that turned out to be a pretty balanced um, solution for, you know, for most people. Um, and it also gives us the ability, we have some visibility in the tracking of the kits. So we use, um, you know, all first class postage for the return kits and we include uh, tracking on all those. And we share that tracking information actually with customer too. After they register their kit, they can see it move through the, um, the postal system so that they know it's actually in our hands. Um, so we can't control that, you know, obviously what USPS does. Most of the time, they're pretty good. But, you know, being honest, <laughs> occasionally things happen, right? I mean, it's oh, yeah. Well, you and I were talking before the show. My uh, my local uh, post office lost one of its uh, regulars. And so uh, now I've got uh, I've had some packages sitting there for about 10 days. And I went down yesterday to pick them up. I'm like, sorry, we can't give you your packages because we don't know where they are. They're in a huge pile. We've got somebody coming in from like New Hampshire to help sort this stuff out. So hopefully you'll get your packages by uh, by Friday. So, uh, yeah, well, I'm glad that you're not sending me stuff other than, um, you know, the, the kit. So I might have to hold off um, the uh, on, on, on ordering a couple of those from. Well, actually, I've got a whole uh, stash from uh, Meckley. I got uh, I, I ordered a bunch of tests from Meckley. So I, I think I'm good until my uh, post uh, postal service issues are solved. Um, oh, thank you very much. I, I'm not I'm going to hack up this name here, but um uh navra hashal shirike thank you very much for that uh super chat have a tough name you can call it nav <laughs> love your show thanks nav really appreciate that um 
So would, can a sample degrade over time? Like if it's in transit for a long time, can that potentially impact the results? You know, so if you were measuring something like alkalinity or nitrates or phosphates, yes, uh, that can change. But because we're looking at, at the elemental composition, it uh, doesn't really matter if the forms of those elements change because of microbial activity or anything like that in the sample. We're going to break them down into the, into the, the, the raw elements anyway. Um, we use tubes that uh, are specially designed not to absorb um, elements uh, out of the samples in the water. Uh, adds a little bit of uh, expense, but uh, it, it obviously results in a, in a, in a better product. Um, so if, in all intents and purposes, no. Uh, I mean, it, it would potentially maybe, uh, you're talking about a year or more, um, you know, there, there could be some small changes in the sample, but that's certainly well beyond anything that anybody would experience. So uh, how many, you, you uh, test 35 plus elements, is that, uh, and no, al that's correct. no alkalinity and no nitrate? Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason go ahead. the reason for the no, those is really, again, um, you can experience changes in those. Nitrate and phosphate can shift due to microbial activity. Not, not much, but they can. Um, alkalinity is very difficult to measure uh, out, of, out of source. Um, you know, there are a lot of factors, including air gap in the tube and um, gases that are trapped in the, in the sample that may release in shipment. Alkalinity is very difficult to to correctly contain a sample and measure it, uh, you know, in a laboratory. So uh, it's almost always going to be wrong uh, by a certain amount. So uh, something maybe at some point we'll look at, but, um, you know, there's, uh, a, you know, a plethora of consumer grade kits that are more than accurate enough for people to, to, to know. Them. Yeah. That's, that's what the alkalinity monitors are for, right? So you can have yeah. uh, as many tests as you want throughout the day, which, exactly. uh, which is, is nice for, uh, for certain folks that like to do a lot of testing. Um, so, all right, um, Bert Minshew has a good question here. Continue on uh, talking about elements. Uh, what can you expect with a Reef Lab test of phosphate versus a HANA checker? Do uh, you average um, do you average seeing higher or lower than the uh, the HANA checker? Any um, you guys have any uh, visibility, uh, Gene, into how, how your uh, phosphate numbers stack up versus hobby grade test kits? Sure. This is a common question. So what we measure in with ICPOES is phosphorus content uh, because phosphorus is the element, right, that's involved here. And, and phosphorus is, you know, a vital element within any biological ecosystem. And it's not always active only in the form of phosphate. Uh, there are other phosphorus uh, containing um, molecules and enzymes and, and um, even other forms, similar forms to phosphate like phosphonates. Um, that are active and important in biological systems. So, uh, you know, th this is a this is a kind of fuzzy, rough area to discuss anyway, as far as a closed, you know, uh, aquaculture system. So, phosphates are a good, um, you know, um, rule of thumb, I guess, to use because they are probably the most common, stable form of phosphorus that you're going to find in a in a you know, an aquarium or in an aquaculture system. Um, so, it's a good they're a good reference point to use. Uh, we provide a calculated value for phosphate in our, our reports, which is based on the phosphorus value that we measure. Um, and this is a, you know, again, that's an estimate because you don't know if all the, all the phosphorus really is in the form of phosphate. Most of it probably is. Um, the consumer kits use a variety of different methods to measure phosphate, and none of those are direct. Uh, phosphate is actually a pretty challenging um, molecule to measure uh, chemically. So a lot of these test kits use um, some form of secondary measurement. So you're adding 
you know, your reagents together and they're actually transforming that phosphate into another compound and then they're measuring that compound uh, because it's easier to measure uh, calorimetrically, uh, you know, it's generally what most of the uh, consumer gets to use. So it's a little bit indirect. It's one step removed. You're not, you're actually measuring the byproduct of a conversion of phosphate into something else. Um, and that's always going to be prone to, you know, a certain amount of error. Uh, if you dig really deep in some of the, um, you know, the manuals and some of the notes that are on the, the websites, the companies that manufacture these consumer kits, uh, particularly HANA and uh, even some of the, the professional grade stuff like Huck, um, they'll list and way back in the back of the booklet, they'll tell you all the interferences that can change the, the readings. And it's, a, it's generally a long list. And there, there are things that we find in our, our tanks, you know, sometimes it's, it's something as common as magnesium. Um, so if your magnesium level is different, it's going to, you know, it's going to change the reading a bit. Um, so, you know, the main important thing is consistency. In that case, if you're going to use a consumer kit, go for consistency. At least you can, you can observe your corals and, and see how they look and, um, and, you know, uh, correlate that to a reading that you're getting on your, um, you know, on your consumer device, or if you're using an ICP, ICP test for it, then you can correlate it to that. But, uh, but as far as comparing them, uh, that's a that's a tall order for phosphate. You know, it's it's frustrating with the hobby grade test kits. You know, I um I think I talked about it on the show uh, maybe a couple of episodes ago. But um, I was using the uh, Milwaukee test kit for phosphate or phosphorus, whatever the uh, the kit is for. And uh, you know, for one of my tanks, I was consistently getting zero 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 on that. And then I sent in a um a sample to you guys, and it came back you know, that, um, my phosphate was like over 0.1. <clears throat> so, you know, obviously I was, um, leaning on that number versus the zero, zero, zero. But before I sent in the, um, the, uh, the sample to you guys, I did a, you know, I dosed a lot of phosphate because I thought I had zero phosphates in my tank. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know if it was a coincidence or not, but I had a couple of corals that just browned out on me. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's been a bugaboo of mine, like over the years. Well, recently the last, I mean, I never tested for phosphate years ago when I had a reef tanks. I just never, never tested for it, I guess, because it was a, uh, not an easy test to, uh, to get or to do whatever it was years ago. So I never even looked at that number, but you know, so that's kind of a, um, kind of a uh, catch 22, right? I mean, we've got all this information these days and you know, you've got so many numbers to look at. So what do you do with all that information? Do you, do you just micromanage your, your tank and just really react, uh, based on those numbers? You know, so, you know, my case, I reacted too quickly and I, pro I probably should have sat back and waited for the ICP test number. Yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing too, to keep in mind is I think sometimes we all do it. We forget that, that, you know, we look at it as just a number and we see that it's not where it should be. And we want to change it, and we don't always take into consideration the impact that that has in the, you know, in the tank or in the ecosystem. Um, sometimes it's better to make those changes gradually um, to give that ecosystem a chance to adapt, because they often have consequences in other areas. Right. The trace metals uh, work together, and uh, if you remedy a deficiency in one, you're likely to create a, a deficiency somewhere else in the process. So. Um, that's also an important lesson is, is make those changes slowly and deliberately, you know, target uh, a small number of areas and work on those and work on them slowly, give the system a chance to balance and uh, obviously observe the coral. <laughs> that's the most important part. <laughs> yes. Observe the corals for sure. Yeah. Is, is it, is it feasible to, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing what I described in terms, of you've got a hobby grade phosphate test kit, you're doing 
those tests, let, let's say weekly. And then, um, you know, maybe once a month you're doing an ICP test with the, with you guys and you're kind of able to compare the results between the ICP test versus the hobby grade test kit. And you, and you see some sort of consistent pattern between the two numbers. Um, is that feasible to say like if the uh, ICP testing numbers are twice as high as the hobby grade test kit numbers that you've been generating? Can you kind of like, you know, with some sort of confidence go with the, all right, maybe it's two times higher than, or, or half of what I'm, you know, or two times higher than what I'm seeing. Sure. I would say yes. Um, but with some, some caution, right. I, I would say within a 30% window. Um, and the reason I say that is because phosphate is something that can change quite, um, readily in a, in a system for a variety of reasons, time of day, um, you know, if you happen to have a um, macroalgae in the system that's, that's in a sump that's heavily lighted. Um, also, I mean, depending on when you feed your fish or what additives you're using, um, phosphate le levels can fluctuate quite a bit. So if you're gonna do that, um, and the same thing is true when you take your samples for the ICP test, try to be very consistent um, about when you take it um, and be observant of, uh, you know, if you've got a regular routine for feeding and, and additives and all that, then that's great. But if you don't, uh, try to be observant of how closely you, you might do those things to when you take a water sample. Because phosphate can change um, much more rapidly than many of the other uh, variables that we track. So, Gene, here, here's something, man. You'll hit the jackpot if you can invent this. <laughs> How about a lab grade phosphate monitor that you could use, you know, in your home aquarium and just being able to like have that ability to uh, instantly measure phosphate with a lab grade. Uh, is, is that just like an impossibility at this point in time? Is that just not uh, feasible? I think from economically, it's not feasible. Um, such a thing does exist. Uh, there's a company that makes them for environmental purposes. And oftentimes they use them for monitoring uh, runoff waters or um, estuary waters and things like this. But they're, um, you know, you're talking five to $6,000 for mm, yeah. an to do that. So I, it's probably not gonna become popular. In, in I, can, I can only think of a handful of people that might uh, have the coin to, uh, to pony up for that uh, sort of instrument. But uh, hmm, yeah, okay. Interesting. Um, so Mike um, Hoppe's got a question. Reef Labs uh, doesn't test for tin. What effect does tin play on our reefs? A uh, different company a few months ago uh, showed elevated tin. It uh, it led to a rusty magnet discovery. Any feedback about tin? Yeah. So again, this is um, um, a choice that we made in terms of what we included in the test based on what we could um, achieve a certain reliability standard on. Uh, tin happens to be a challenging metal uh, in ICPO, yes. Um, there are actually, there are a number of those. So we, each element has with it its own set of challenges and interferences and problems. Uh, tin and mercury, um, arsenic, um, there are a handful of others um, are, are very difficult. Uh, there are numbers, uh, copper, um, molybdenum, um, and um, boron actually are, are also somewhat challenging, not as much as those. So, you know, at some point you have to draw a line and say, well, you know, what can we, what can we include that fits the, the envelope of accuracy that, that we want to have for mm. you know, all of the elements? And uh, tin just wasn't one that we, that made the cut uh, because of what it would have added in terms of cost and, and time uh, to the kit. So, or to the test process, actually, not to the kit itself, but to the, the actual process of testing. So that's not to say, um, you know, and this is actually one of the arguments uh, that is probably for us introducing an ICPMS uh, test kit, because it would 
uh, allow us to offer a broader range of elements. It would be somewhere um, north of 70 elements if we were to do that, and it would include tin. Um, so that's an argument for it, and that's certainly one that we're considering in that case. But as far as the OES test was concerned, we were more interested in ensuring that the elements that we included were accurate um, and uh, precise uh, than we were necessarily in trying to include every every element that we could possibly uh, put in there. So um, Cruise Reef Clan is wondering, do you test RO water also? I mean, is that does that make sense? Would, would, would uh, there be a reason to test RO water to, to see if it's got any um, contaminants in it? Sure. So yeah, this is a, this is a common question, and, and we do. Yes, we do test RO water. Uh, we don't include that with every kit, uh, and there's a there's a reason for that. Um, RO water systems tend to change very slowly, right? Uh, you exhaust your your membrane and your your DI resins and carbon and all those things very slowly compared to the rate at which uh, water can change in, a, in an aquarium. Uh, so it doesn't make sense to test RO water on the same interval that you would test aquarium water because you're you're kind of wasting money and resources to do that. Uh, so if you want to test your RO water, it's, it's, you can, instead of sending in a salt sample, you can buy a kit and you can send in an RO sample and, and, and we'll, we'll test it. Um, but we found that, uh, you know, you've got so much weight to work with to keep postage under a certain amount. And we would chose to have two tubes in the kit that were both salt water, uh, mainly because believe it or not, it's rather frequent that one of those tubes gets broken in transit because of a sorting machine chews it up. Hmm. Um, sometimes uh, people aren't always careful when they put the caps on and one of the caps will be on a little bit crooked and half the liquid runs out in the, you know, in transit. And, uh, you know, that can be very frustrating, particularly if you've got an issue that you're trying to solve. And, and if there was only one tube with salt water in it, uh, and the other one had your RO and your salt water leaked or got broken uh, and you've got an issue, I mean, that can be disastrous because it, it could add a week or two weeks of time to you could send in another sample. Um, so uh, we thought that was the best trade-off to do it that way. But yes, by all means, if somebody wants to test RO, send it in and we'll, we'll do it. Well, that's what the two tubes are uh, for, just in case. That's right. Someone gets yeah. busted. Insurance policy. <laughs> so um, Paulia129-1988, is, uh, is that your social? No, a couple of digits short there. Uh, so if you do ICP testing and everything is in line, is it still necessary to do water changes? And I saw Chris uh, answering that question. If everything, if everything is in line, no, we are hoping at some point we never do a water change on any of our systems. So what, yeah, um, you know, like, like to get your thoughts in terms of that, in terms of water changes yeah. and what you guys do. You know, and there, there's other companies out there. We won't talk about, but, um, you know, they have a whole system in terms of being able to, you know, have trace uh, elements and minor and, and, and trace elements and being able to not do water changes based on those test results. Is, is that what the whole um, connection, a big part of it is with, with Captivate Agriculture? Yes. Yeah, and, and that's it's a great question, and I agree it's absolutely possible to not do water changes. Um, I do them very infrequently on my uh, my personal tank at home, and I say infrequently, maybe a year and a half since the uh, between uh, water changes. Um, I know, uh, uh, you know, Chris Wood has some some of his personal tanks that are longer than that, you know, between water changes. Um, the main issue, um, well, and there's two issues. One, you have to decide, you know, as as a hobbyist, are you do you want to do that? Do you enjoy, you know, looking at those numbers and figuring out how to correct those, you know, those deficiencies or correct the excesses? Is it something you're willing to do? Or would you rather do, you know, a comparatively easy thing and, and that's just continue, you know, with water changes? So um, that's part of it is it's a, it's a personal uh, decision. You know, what do you enjoy doing? How do you enjoy your reef? Do you want to spend time doing that or would you, you know, rather do water changes? Um, the other side of it is uh, contaminants. 
Um, so, you know, all of these uh, salts and metals and things that we add into our systems um, have to come from a mine somewhere. And, and um, you know, the reality is that uh, there's lots of contaminants in those substances that have to be removed uh, to get to the, the elements and the, the salts that we're interested in. And uh, there again, it's cost, right? Um, you know, so, you know, buying lab chemicals, I mean, you, there's, there's lots of different grades um, that you can purchase. Um, you know, we, for example, we use something that's called trace metal grade uh, for our, in, in the lab for our analysis. And those are, you know, anywhere from um, four to five nines pure. Uh, and they're very costly to get them that pure. Uh, obviously, we can't use those in the hobby because all the additives would be out of, out of, out of reach for, for almost everybody. Uh, so you have to, again, it's a, it's a product decision, and, you know, in marketing and, and how you price things to determine what you want to offer. Captivate offers an exceptional product. Uh, you know, Chris Wood uh, goes to great lengths to choose sources for his, um, his salts and chemicals that he uses in his compositions to minimize those uh, contaminants as much as possible. And when I say goes to great lengths, he goes to great lengths. I mean, he'll... He'll, he'll, he literally will identify mines and parts of the world that, that inherently have less, uh, less you know, contaminants. Lithium is a, is a common one. Cesium is another one that they're very common. And uh, um, that makes a difference because if you're not doing water changes, anything else that's in your additives besides what you want to be in there is going to accumulate. And some of those are not easy to remove. Uh, some, you know, some things you can remove with carbon or GFO or, you know, resins or things like that. But uh, cesium and uh, lithium are pretty difficult. Um, should we, you know, um, should we be concerned, um, Gene, if we have high uh, lithium levels in our tanks? I mean, I've always heard that, um, you know, there's a lot of salts that have a lot, you know, higher uh, elevated lithium. But I've also read that it's not something that uh, uh, hobbyists should be terribly concerned about. Yeah, I don't personally have any evidence that it's a problem, and I've seen many, you know, outstanding tanks that that have high lithium levels that you know certainly aren't showing any signs of distress or or other issues. Um, I'm certain that there is probably a limit, um, you know, with all things. I mean, if you accumulate enough of it, eventually it's going to cause a problem. I don't know what that limit is. Uh, I've seen uh, tanks with uh, that again that look healthy with uh, as much as uh, you know two three parts per million lithium. Um, but, um, you know, like all, like all things, I mean, the closest you can keep it to natural seawater, if it's an unknown like that, the better off you are. But I certainly wouldn't be concerned if you see lithium levels that are, you know, around one part per million, you know, give or take. But again, it's an unknown. So, uh, it's that caveat with it. So, um, how would somebody, you know, utilize your service to not do the water changes? You know, what would you recommend in terms of frequency of the ICP tests? You know, how often should they uh, be doing them? What uh, should they be doing in terms of figuring out what um, elements to be, uh, what traces or elements to be uh, to dosing, to add? How, how, how does that all like come into play in terms of following that methodology? Well, I think it depends partially on where you're at as a hobbyist. You know, if you if you have an established tank and you've got thousands of dollars of coral that you've been collecting and, and caring for for years, um, I would say, you know, do it every month um, as an insurance policy. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about what, approximately $40. I mean, that's that's pretty little to pay for to protect um, something that you've invested years into and potentially is, is worth uh, tens of thousands of dollars, right? Depending on what you have. 
uh, I would look at it that way. And, and um, the reason I say that is that, you know, uh, people often come up with ways of, of getting their systems to that point that are based on trial and error. And, um, you know, there's, there are implicit assumptions with that trial and error that change as the amount of biomass changes in your system. And the likelihood, your biomass is always growing, right? Uh, you're, you're, if you're a very uh, regimented and you, and you follow a regular process and procedure, that's not changing. So if your biomass is changing and your process isn't changing, um, eventually they're going to get to the point where, where one is not able to support the other. And uh, I think that's why we often see people have these gorgeous tanks. They've had them for four or five, six years, and they crash with no explanation. And I suspect it's just probably that biomass outgrew the process, right? And some essential element or essential elements eventually weren't being kept up with whatever the process was, and, and the coral adapted until they couldn't anymore, and then you, you have system failure. So in that case, I say do it, you know, do it monthly, ideally, um, you know, six weeks, you know, if, if you have to. Um, if you're new, right, and you're just starting out, then my answer is a little bit different. I would say, you know, think about what your objective is, right? Are you trying to just, you know, make your system um, sustainable for coral or are you trying to go for the most growth and the best coloration you can possibly get? Um, if you're trying to make it sustainable, I would say, you know, do something at the beginning, uh, let your tank uh, equalize for a bit, you know, maybe a couple months later, three months later, do it again and, you know, ease into it. Um, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're going for growth and coloration and you're really into it and, and you've got the wherewithal and the, and you know, the, the, the right head to be able to, to work with those numbers, then, um, I would say identify a few elements, um, that are, that are important and work on those, um, get those stable, uh, test as regularly as you can, uh, right. Till you get those stable. Once you've got those solved, go after another group. And, uh, and do that until you've achieved whatever your, you know, your goal might, might be. If you've got the coloration and the growth that you want, then, you know, level off there and, and kind of keep it going. But, uh, but use it as a tool and do like you would with any tool. Um, you know, think uh, carefully about how you're using it to make sure that it aligns with what your goal is. Yeah, you know, so since I started using your uh, ICP test, I've, I've been working with, um, you know, with Chris Wood at um, Captivate. And also Chris Meckley has been guiding me as well in terms of... Um, you know, utilizing the Reef Labs ICP testing and, and traces and, and what have you. So, yeah, basically what I've been doing is I've, I've been running some ICP tests with you guys. And then um, uh, Chris Wood has been recommending certain traces that I should be dosing, you know, in my two different um, systems. So it's just it's a matter of um, looking at the data from you and then kind of consulting with uh, with Chris. And he's got a spreadsheet that um, I utilize that, um, you know, Basically, you just kind of punch your results into that spreadsheet and it, you know, kind of, I guess, um, generates these recommendations in terms of how much you should uh, be dosing. Is, is that something that potentially you might have, um, um, you might automate, you know, maybe you have that sort of calculator on your website, make it, um, you know, more, um, I guess, easier to kind of like digest that data and then pop in some numbers and generate some recommendations that way? Yeah, and I would say I would say two things. I mean, uh, we've made some recent enhancements uh, in the last few weeks to kind of uh, help people make better use of those numbers. Um, you know, we've given some indicators about things that things that are changing or things that are changing rapidly uh, or or decreasing rapidly. We're also showing you comparisons against your previous tests, so you can see easily how much something moved. 
So our, the whole site is, is geared around um, trying to give you the information that you need to make use of those numbers instead of just, you know, kind of throwing them out there. So we put a lot of thought into the, the website and the way the numbers are presented. And we have plans to continue to do that. Um, you know, we're going to continue to enhance that. A lot of it is coming from feedback from our customers and feedback from Chris and both Chris's. Um, so that's, you know, that's part of it. Um, the other part of it, though, is, you know, um, uh, Chris Meckley and, and Chris Wood, they're, they're both superstars, I mean, in the, in the hobby. I mean, For they've sure. both forgotten more than most of us know about <laughs> taking care of coral. Um, I mean, you know, the number of years of experience there between the two of them is, is incredible. And, um, you know, they're both like-minded. They're both passionate. Um, we also need to have people like both of them in the industry sharing that knowledge, as they both are. Uh, that's equally important. Um, no matter what we do to, you know, provide numbers and results and all this, it's not, you know, we'll never... Um, you know, overtake the value of also having that uh, that wisdom and experience available too. And I think they're both looking at, at ways also to try and um, improve how they're transferring their knowledge and experience into the hobby as well too. But you know, you also need to have a reliable way to measure those things to go with that uh, yeah. that advice. So it works hand in hand. Yep. No, I mean it would be awesome to have that sort of uh, integration with with your data and and uh, with Captivate or whoever you know um, you know whatever traces folks would use out there some sort of um, um, you know easier way to kind of like figure out if you want to follow that certain method in terms of reading the data understanding the data and how to act on that data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any best practices for? collecting sample water you know should is there a certain area of the tank or the system that you should be collecting sample water a day versus night you know right after feeding the fish is that okay i know what after feeding the fish i try not to do like a phosphate test because i think that's going to be an elevated number there but uh, any any tips in terms of collection i would say if you're doing dosing at a particular time of the day of traces um wait a few hours you know ideally two or three hours before you take in with feeding, um, you know, wait, let some hours pass uh, after feeding before you take samples. Um, otherwise, I mean, um, obviously, you know, I, I think this probably goes without saying, you know, make sure your hands are, are clean. You haven't touched any, um, you know, containers that have trace elements or touched any uh, foods, frozen foods or anything like that. Uh, try to um, actually submerge the tube under the surface, um, kind of upside down. So you trap the air in there and let the air out so that you're getting water out of the column and not surface water. Uh, surface water is more likely to have dust and other contaminants uh, or even things, you know, that uh, you maybe get a biofilm there that uh, that can uh, make those those measurements not quite as accurate. Um, make sure you rinse out the tubes two or three times of the tank water as well, too. Um, that way, if there is, you know, we, like I said, we use a high-quality tube, but it, it never hurts to make sure that, uh, you know, it's rin rinsed out. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, absolutely make sure you fill the tube to the top uh, when you cap it uh, for several reasons. One, I mean, it's just uh, better not to have any air there. And two, um, our, we use 14 mLs of water in the test and our, our system is calibrated against 14 mLs. Sometimes people don't quite fill it to 14. And that's actually another reason for the second tube is we have to use the other tube to oh. get a full 14 mLs <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, it, it, it makes things um uh, it affects the accuracy of the test. We can adjust for it. If somebody sends in a kit, and, and we've had it happen before, where one tube is half empty and the other one's completely empty, we can still Bummer. do the test. But um, it requires an adjustment, and it does reduce the accuracy of the test to test with a, a lower volume of water. 
Mr. Reef Safe, thank you very much for that super chat. The comment is, hey, Gene. So I guess you know Mr. Reef Safe. I do. <laughs> Another awesome <laughs> member of our community there. So. <laughs> um, have you guys ever thought about testing for bacteria? There's uh, there's one service out there that does that, um, Aquabiomics. They test for uh, bacteria. You know, it kind of it um, it reminded me because when you you mentioned like you know people have beautiful reef tanks and after four or five years all of a sudden they crash. You know, a lot of that can be uh, bacteria related in in terms of uh, you know the RTN or the STN or whatever else might uh, cause a crash. Have have you guys thought about um, you know looking into that in terms of testing for bacteria? And, so at this point, you know, I'm not interested in, in doing it. We're not. I mean, Eli does a fantastic job. I mean, he, um, ha I believe, you know, based on my limited conversations with him and observing the kit, I actually use their kits, um, does an exceptional job of, of monitoring detail and, and quality in the product. So, uh, I, you know, there's, there's an adequate solution there in the market, and I think it's fair priced. So there's, um, you know, not much of a <laughs> business reason to challenge it. Uh, but I definitely recommend it. Um, you know, you can actually, as you correct trace elements, you can visual, visibly see your, your bacterial colony change. Mm. Um, uh, trace elements have a huge impact um, on bacteria in closed systems. And I think is actually, uh, and there's a growing body of evidence, um, open ocean research mostly, uh, that shows that there's quite a bit more connection between those uh, trace elements and the bacteria and also between the bacteria and the coral as well, too. Um, that there's uh, quite a bit more connection there, appears than we're aware of. And we're always, uh, matter of fact, selenium just uh, kind of popped up on the radar this week. Um, there had been a lot of debate uh, as to the importance of selenium in microbial um, activity um, until recently. Uh, they actually identified uh, multiple other pathways in which uh, bacteria can utilize selenium in fairly important ways. So those things are always, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a growing field and we're, we're learning a lot. Um, so I, I think we're going to find in the coming years that uh, there's even greater importance than what we currently realize in balancing trace elements. Yeah, no, the microbiome is just so um, so important. But then, you know, there are, there are a lot of unknowns. You know, I've done some of the bacteria testing myself, and and it it's it's good to kind of um, you know see what the diversity is of the bacteria and whether or not you have any bacteria that you need to be concerned about. But uh, yeah, that's interesting to know in terms of how the uh, you know the relationship to uh, to traces. I didn't. Did not realize that. Yep, absolutely. What about, um, and folks, let me remind you, if, if you uh, want to ask uh, Gene a question, feel free to uh, drop the, uh, the question into the, uh, into the chat. What about um, benchmark data, Gene? How do you guys compile your benchmark data? Because in your reports, you know, you have, a, um, you know, you have the, the, the numbers that are being tested for the particular aquarium, and then you're comparing them to these uh, norms, these benchmark uh, data. And um, yeah, talk to us about that. That came from a massive amount of research. Um, so it turns out there's uh, not the agreement on um, a lot of these values, particularly when you're talking about the trace elements. Uh, macros and, and minors, uh, I think there's a uh, fairly co good consensus if you look in published research papers. So we actually went to the journals, um, you know, scientific journals in the field of marine biology and, and looked at you know, what, what were people doing, what had they studied, uh, what were the results, what was published, how were they measuring these. Um, and we found an act actually incredible amount of diversity um, in, the, in the measured results. Uh, and of course, there's also some variation depending on where those samples are taken. Uh, there are certain parts of the world in particular that uh, have, have some deviations there. 
Uh, so we try to take all of that into account. Um, in addition to that, um, part of that year long of, of R&D uh, was, and, and is still ongoing actually, That's uh, that activity is still ongoing, uh, was observing you know, how, how we can push these limits and, and what limits we actually see in healthy systems. Um, so we've done some of our own research in that area. We'll, we'll take an individual element and, and push it far beyond what uh, anybody would consider uh, safe or even think about doing in, in, with a reef tank and uh, observe what happens. Um, you know, one of those is, uh, is potassium. And, uh, you know, certainly there's some, um, some benefits there in using some potassium compounds for managing pH and, and otherwise. But, uh, you know, we found that we could actually elevate potassium by almost uh, three times what's in natural seawater uh, without observing much of an effect. Now, when we get to three times, uh, you know, there are certain species of coral and also it's a little hard on the fish and, you know, you, you mm. can you know, observe effects. Um, so, you know, we, we found that a lot of, a lot of elements have quite a bit of leeway in them. Um, others do not. <laughs> so, um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a combination of that research, uh, our experience, and also what we see in the test results that are coming in and, and where we actually have access to those systems or can assess the health of those systems in some way. Um, and we expect to, um, you know, to improve those over time as well as we have more data and more information to use to, to compound those. Uh, but that said, our ranges are um, are conservative, maybe not as conservative as uh, every benchmark that's out there, but uh, we did err on the side of, of being conservative to ensure that, uh, you know, we're not going to steer anybody into an area where they might, uh, you know, have problems. Um, another factor to consider is that many of these elements don't uh, act independently. Um, many of them act in concert. So um, you also have to be careful in considering that if one is out of range, um, it can impact um, the effect of others. Uh, so those ranges, our benchmark ranges, were designed to mitigate that so that if you did have imbalances in one area, um, it wouldn't suddenly cause a slight excess in another area to become detrimental to, to the health of the system. How much weight uh, do you put in terms of, uh, you know, natural um, seawater parameters in your benchmarks? You know, you, you hear a lot of people say um, when they're talking about their tanks, in terms of where their nitrates and their phosphates and their, you know, alk and calcium and magnesium. And, well, you know, I, I, I stick to natural seawater, you know, um, parameters, you know, how, so how much weight do you guys put into natural seawater? So natural seawater is certainly probably the most conservative that you can get in terms of, of choosing ranges. Um, but that comes with a, um, you know, with a liability and natural seawater barely changes, right? The, the open ocean has such a capacity to buffer the ranges of those elements that very few naturally occurring events can alter them significantly in a short period of time. Uh, and that stability, um, you know, is predominantly what allows natural seawater to be so successful with marine life. Um, but, um, you know, you also have to consider that natural uh, marine life is in, in the open ocean is basically restricted by iron. Uh, iron is is mostly responsible for putting a limitation on how quickly things can grow and, and you know, how, how well things survive in the ocean. So uh, when you try to transfer that into a closed system, it's difficult because in a closed system, you can have very rapid fluctuations. Um, so the, the, the relative ratios of those elements don't stay very constant in a closed uh, system. So if you've got life that's, you know, barely on the edge of something that's stable, and then you add fluctuation into it, uh, it's probably not a very good mix. Uh, it's, it's a hard hard condition to maintain. 
So we tend to err on the, on the side of, of certain elements having a little bit more um, than what's in the open ocean because they're stabilizing elements that um, you don't really want to, to fluctuate because of their impact on, on um, marine metabolism of the organisms or also bacterial uh, health, uh, bacterial populations. So we tend to err on the side of being high on those to try to mitigate the differences of a closed system. You don't have that stability. Um, so natural seawater is conservative, but it also carries with it the peril of, you know, if you can maintain everything perfectly, then you'll, you'll do, you'll do, you won't have issues with natural seawater levels, but the reality is that's very hard to do. Um, so a lot of our research has been focused on, well, which areas can we supplement without detriment that will add stability to the system and uh, help offset those fluctuations that are inevitable in, in other elements. What about um, customer tanks? Does that factor into the equation at all in terms of uh, benchmark data? Do you utilize customer tanks? You know, if you've got some uh, customers, um, you know, Chris at ACI that, you know, has very successful systems, is, is that, um, you know, part of the equation at all? Absolutely. Yeah. If we if we have access or, or you know, some other suitable substitute to know that the, the system is healthy and in good condition, absolutely. We, we factor we factor as much data as we can into those assessments, uh, knowing how important it is to, uh, you know, get a, a as wide a breadth of variety as we possibly can into into those uh, assessments. All right. Some questions. Speaking of Chris at ACI, he says, uh, ask Gene about the skimmate test. <laughs> is that a loaded, is that a loaded yeah. question so that was actually something we did uh, some months ago uh with uh in conjunction with chris at aci we were we were very curious about uh you know uh, what what actually is coming out of the system in skimmate i mean you know the i don't know you know how broadly known the theory is of skimmers but um bacteria have a, a small electrical charge and uh, yes, when you hear about gram negative or gram positive, it refers to uh, whether that bacteria naturally has a negative or positive charge. And uh, any anytime you have a, a interface between water and air, um, there's also a slight electrical charge there, which is actually what's responsible for creating the surface tension in water. That's why if you drop a plastic bead or styrofoam bead on water, you'll see it kind of indent a little bit, but it won't sink. Um, that's that electrostatic charge in the surface. So in a skimmer, um, you... Uh, you have a lot of surface uh, air to water surface contact. And what that actually does is that, that electrical charge of the surface tension between the air and water attracts the bacteria to it. And uh, so skimmers are very effective at removing bacteria from the water column for that reason, which is why your skimmate is, is so rich in, um, in bacterial content. Obviously it pulls out proteins and other things too, uh, for similar reasons, but uh, uh, the bacterial part was what interested us. You know, we wanted to see, well, okay, we know it's pulling out a lot of bacteria, so it's an ideal opportunity to find out, well, how much of the trace elements that we're putting in these systems are actually ending up in the bacteria versus the coral. And, uh, you know, make a long story short, uh, we found uh, very large concentrations of trace elements in skimming, hmm. um, which, uh, you know, supported this idea that we had that the bacteria actually were mostly responsible for consuming the trace elements. And then the coral, in turn, are then consuming the bacteria. Um, via the mucosa that you find, uh, you know, everybody's familiar with on, on all coral. Uh, so, um, and that's actually being initiated by more and more research that's coming out, uh, you know, in the in the um, in the industry, in the journals and whatnot. They're finding a lot of a lot of uh, symbiotic activity happening there, and, and corals are getting a significant amount of their their uh, nutritional requirements by consuming those bacteria. 
do you uh, would you recommend to folks to uh, dose bacteria on a, like a daily or weekly basis just um, to, to to help feed those corals and and keep the microbiome uh, you know diverse? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as I said, as I mentioned, we we use aqua aquabiomics uh, uh, test kits, and there's absolutely a, a correlation between bacterial diversity and the health of the system. And uh, I, I think it's a very easy thing to do. I mean, to periodically do it, and I, I definitely recommend it. Can't go wrong. So a question from Hamada H, if I pronounce that correctly. Hey, Gene, can you tell us a little bit about your scheduled maintenance on the instruments? How often, how long, and how many people does it take to run the instruments? Sure. So, you know, any, any laboratory is going to have uh, scheduled downtime to do maintenance. Um, these instruments are extremely complex. Uh, they have, um, you know, uh, a number of components. I mean, for example, the OES system has, uh, uh, uses uh, liquid argon and liquid nitrogen. It also uses uh, chilled water. Uh, actually, it's not water, but it's, uh, it's water with a particular additive. Um, there are uh, optical surfaces. Um, there are um, 20 or 30 different surfaces with O-rings that experience wear. Um, there are... Um, surfaces that are exposed to the plasma that uh, develop corrosion have to be cleaned. So it's, uh, you know, it's part of the proper maintenance of the systems is to take care of those on a regular basis. Um, we prefer to do it, you know, more often than, than, uh, than not, but, uh, you know, that's something that we anticipate probably doing twice per year. Uh, I think once in the fall and, and once in the spring. Um, and you know, we, we go to every length possible, obviously to let people know and, and well in advance so that people can plan around that when in terms of when they send their kits in, but it's part of our, um, part of our strategy to, to maintain that level of quality and consistency in the tests that we really strive to with, with our products. So, um, Dan Sovetsky is asking, going to try this company soon. Really enjoy these sessions. Thank you, Reef Thanks, Dan. Um, so Gene, where can folks, um, get these test kits? So we have on our uh, our website, uh, you can go there, and we've got a buy link up in the top corner, and you go to that buy link, that'll take you to a page with a, a map uh, that shows all of the retail stores, local fish stores that carry our products, and also our, uh, our online partners that carry the products as well. Um, so there's lots of options there. Um, you know, we definitely encourage people if... Uh, uh, you know, their local fish store doesn't carry the product to, you know, ask them to reach out to us and we'll put them in, in contact with uh, ACI. ACI is actually our, our sole distributor in the U.S. Um, we, um, we, we made that decision very carefully because, uh, number one, we know that Chris is passionate about, um, you know, all aspects of, of coral care and, and whatnot. And, and uh, we also, uh, we didn't want to focus on that ourselves because we wanted to put all of our resources into uh, testing, uh, the product development, and uh, how we present the data. And, you know, managing fulfillment is, uh, takes a lot of energy and, and time. Uh, so uh, we thought that was the, the, the perfect choice there. And uh, so any, any of the local fish stores can get in contact with ACI and carry the product, and we'll put them on our website as well, too, so that they're available and, and reachable. But, uh, but that's the place to go. Go to the buy link and uh, you, know, you put in your zip code or whatnot, see if there's anybody near you. Or you can you can buy them from saltwater.com or also from uh, Aquaholics, and um, yeah, so we, we try to make them, and that list is growing, you know, almost uh, on a weekly basis. So hopefully we'll get more soon. So the uh, the love is coming back from from uh, from ACI Amanda Meckley. Uh, thank you so much for the uh, super chat there, Amanda. Gene is such a wealth of information. So happy you had him on, Keith. Thanks to Nathan and Gene for starting up Reef Labs. Great people! Exclamation point. Uh, Mike Hoppa's got a question. Recently started dosing isolate eight, uh, isolate 
MT, which is a Captivate aquaculture product. Last ICP test showed deficiencies in many trace elements. How long after initial dosing before taking another ICP test to check results? 10 days uh, slash one drop beginning dose. I, you know, I would say every two weeks is a good interval when you're trialing, trying to dial in uh, trace elements like that. Um, MT is a fantastic product because it makes it uh, relatively easy um, when you're trying to satisfy a number of those uh, trace elements that are commonly deficient. Um, two weeks is enough time to you know, kind of find out where you're at. Um, the recommendations on those products are uh, intentionally fairly conservative. Uh, Chris Wood did a great job of, of I think, uh, providing safe starting points for all of his products so that people don't have um, you know, unintended accidents with, with their systems that, you know, all of us have experienced one time or another, but, uh, by starting out that way and, and, and testing regularly, you can build up to, to, um, optimal levels without risking, uh, you know, an overage that could be catastrophic. What about the use of, uh, GFO, right? Uh, granule ferric, uh, oxide to remove, uh, phosphates is, uh, you know, so, so that stuff not only binds phosphate, but it could also bind valuable um, trace elements. Do you do you um, always uh, say to people, you know, try to stay away from GFO and go more natural means for uh, nutrient reduction, or is uh, GFO okay in small doses? You know, I, I would always say try to go the natural means if you can. Uh, I mean, it's always safer that way. Um, you know, I, I know that everybody that I personally know that I've talked to has had a variety of, of experiences with GFO and and. You know, it can affect polyp extension. It can affect a lot of things. You know, coral do respond to it. Um, not entirely clear what's driving that. Um, it may be, you know, suspended particulates. Um, you know, it depends on how well you rinse it. There also are a tremendous um, number of different qualities of GFO out there. Um, you know, GFO gets its properties based on its um, uh, the structure, the material. And uh, all GFO is not the same, right? So uh, that that's certainly a factor in it as well, too. Uh, it is very effective at removing aluminum, which is a you know positive and uh, sometimes uh, arsenic. Um, but um, you know it's it's not entirely clear what else it's removing uh, at the same time. It's it's a study actually we've been interested in in doing to to try and ascertain um, you know what else it's it's capable of removing. Iron is a very um, um, active element, uh, you know, in terms of binding with other elements. Um, and uh, I know from other studies that we've done in the lab that, uh, that uh, you know, for, like, for example, if we're analyzing other studies, not seawater, um, remove, if you've got high levels of iron in those samples, it makes it very difficult to, to measure other elements in the samples because iron tends to, to stick to them. So uh, I'd say there's a, probably a pretty good chance that GFO removes a lot of things that we don't want it to remove in addition to things that we do uh, in systems. Yeah, early on in my reef keeping career, I, I I used GFO, you know, to to control phosphates, and it was frustrating because sometimes I would, um, you know, be a little bit too aggressive with it, and I would I would experience, um, you know, faded colors on my corals. So I always um, thought it was a, um, it's easy to use, you know, it's very easy to use, but I think it's a, um, you know, bit of a um, a risk in terms of how much do you use and and um, when to refresh it. So it's, um, yeah, and then the whole thing in terms of removing the uh, the valuable trace elements, I think, is uh, certainly a key point. Uh, Gene, if you had to, like, rattle off a, a top 10 list of, um, you know, the, uh, the top 10 minor and traces that people should really be concerned about, you know, pay the most attention to, what would that list uh, uh, include? I would say it would be uh, iodine, uh, iron, zinc, 
uh, vanadium, selenium, uh, cobalt, uh, chromium, manganese, uh, copper, and phosphorus. Um, not, not in any particular order. Um, you know, there, there, there are probably some there that are more important than others, uh, but uh, that would be on my list. Um, an interesting alternate notable, which I don't really know yet, it's still an area of investigation for us, is fluoride. Um, there's, um, that's a, it's a dangerous element, you know, in excess, but um, there's some growing evidence that there's actually some benefit to it uh, as well. But uh, the, the verdict's out on that one yet. <laughs> And I definitely would not encourage anybody to experience with that unless you really experiment with that, excuse me, unless you really, uh, really know what you're doing and you're being very careful with it. Um, you mentioned iron. So, you know, a lot of times this will show up on ICP tests as, as zero. And, and even after, um, you know, people dose it, I mean, I dose it and I've, I've had zero um, come up on my ICP test. Does, does it make sense to keep dosing iron if the corals are going to just keep consuming it so quickly? Sure. So iron, iron and manganese actually um, don't stay in solution very well in seawater. Uh, both of them are very active elements. They tend to bind easily, uh, both organically and inorganically. Um, so uh, most of, of the reason behind why it disappears so quickly is because it precipitates out into non-soluble solids. Um, so that said, um, you know, the best way to maintain levels of iron and manganese in your system is to dose them continuously. Uh, you know, throughout a 24-hour period. So once an hour, you know, you set up a dose or a program to uh, to distribute your total daily dose into into 24 doses works well. And you will start to see you'll start to see readings appear at the same dosage that you wouldn't see them if you did it just once a day, uh, because mm. essentially you're interacting that precipitation. If you put it in once a day, it's going to precipitate out in, in a few hours and your your coral are not going to get the full benefit of it. If you do it hourly throughout the day, you'll maintain a level in, in solution that at least uh, your microbes and, and coral can. Now, uh, can you, now you got me thinking, man, I'll have to uh, maybe use one of my dosing channels for uh, for iron. I, I didn't, did not realize that it's got to be constantly dosed throughout the day. That's, uh, that's a pretty interesting observation. Um, what about potassium? You know, I don't think you mentioned potassium as one of those uh, that people should be looking out for. Is that uh, is that something no, that? Go ahead. That's a macro. It's a macro element. That's why I didn't mention it. So, uh, you know, I gave you all uh, miners and traces there, but uh, potassium is really a macro element because of the, right. the quantity. All of the all of the uh, macros are really important. <laughs> so there isn't any there. I mean, uh, you know, uh, potassium is very important. Um, obviously. Uh, uh, you know, sulfur is probably one that I don't hear uh, people talk about much, and it really is something you should monitor um, because uh, a lot of the additives, you know, the, the salts that we tend to use, particularly for the, the macro elements, uh, can be in two forms. They can be in, uh, you know, chloride-based salts or they can be in sulfate-based salts. And uh, if you're not using an additive that balances those properly, you can end up with an excess of sulfates or, you know, in some cases I've seen systems within... Uh, a deficiency in sulfate, and um, we definitely have observed detrimental effects from uh, uh, from that. Uh, it affects the you know the ionic balance of the of the system, of the water, and uh, we suspect it probably interferes with um, either microbial or coral activity and being able to assimilate some of the, the traces because the those uh, chlorides and sulfates affect the ability to um, um, extract now the amount of energy involved in extracting those elements out of the water column. And that's based not on um, biological research, but um, if you're working with resins um, and uh, you're trying to ex remove metals from 
water samples using resins, the presence of chlorine or sulfate in the water actually interferes with the resin's ability to remove those elements. And resins essentially uh, work on, off of an energy principle. So they have, to, they, they have a, an amount of energy that they can expend to, to extract those elements. So, so we believe that if a resin experiences some change in its ability to extract elements, that probably bacteria and coral do as well, also based on the ratios of chlorides to sulfates. Um all right, so Chris uh, at ACI has um, made a comment, and I want to just pop back to what we were just talking about with, with iron and dosing that uh, constantly versus just one time a day. Chris's comment is dosing is the key manually works, but 24-7 dosing on all the um, M&Ts, I think he's talking about miners and traces, has been amazing. So uh, it, that that's um, basically what Chris is saying is that uh, instead of just uh, hand dosing it, at one certain point of the day to be doing that uh, 24-7? I mean, every, uh, like, hour? Is that kind of like the uh, the recommended interval? I mean, what would if, if you were um, making a recommendation in terms of going 24-7 dosing versus once a day, how often and uh, any particular times of the day? I, I've heard that, and, and uh, I'm sorry, this is like I'm, I'm, I'm making a lot of, uh, I'm throwing a lot out there to you, but um, what I've heard is that in terms of traces, from uh, Chris Captivate, it's better to do it during the um, the daytime because I think that's when the uh, the corals might be more uh, actively feeding. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, as far as that particularity, I, I don't I don't have any uh, experience or data to draw off of. He would you know, he probably would know better about that. Uh, but as far as frequency, um, you know, uh, I've have gone to as frequent as, as hourly and, and, and seen improvements versus doing it six times a day or four times a day. Um, I know at, at ACI, I mean, you know, every time I go there, I think, wow, Chris's coral can't possibly look any better. And then he makes one of these changes and they look better. So, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I would say, you know, the, the, the more frequent you can, the better. I don't think there's a, as long as you're, you know, not uh, risking the accuracy of your, your dosing amounts, I would say the more frequently you can do it, the better. You're not going to experience any, any negative from it. Gotcha. You know, and, and uh, I guess the other logistical thing to consider, and maybe this is not a question for you, but uh, if you're dosing, let's say, seven or eight different uh, miners or traces, and you don't have enough uh, dosing heads to do that. How do you dose all of them at once on a consistent basis? I think um, I think I saw a comment by Chris, or or I heard something that that Chris said. You could actually mix all the uh, traces and miners into uh, RODI water and um, dose it that way. Yes, you can. Uh, you definitely want to start with the full volume of you know. You start with a liter of water or something like that. Um, you don't want those uh, trace elements to uh, additives to combine in concentrated form because they can precipitate out in non-soluble solids that, that won't redissolve in the water. Uh, but yes, that's absolutely viable. And that works. Um, you know, I, I know uh, Chris does that. I do it. Um, it saves you a lot of time and um, it's it's more work. Um, if you can get it to work with MT and, and then just fill in the gaps, you know, with a few others, that's obviously the the less stressful path, um, but if you you know if you if you're up to the challenge, then absolutely that's that's a totally viable way of doing it. Uh, switching gears a little bit, talk to us about salinity. You know, natural seawater is at 35 uh, parts per thousand, and um, you know, so how, how do the different um, salinity levels impact ICP uh, test results? Should we be targeting the 35 ppt? I personally believe yes. Uh, you know, I, I like to be 35 to 36 in my personal experience, not only with my own systems, but with, uh, you know, other systems that I've had the opportunity to observe. 
Um, they seem to uh, seem to be healthier from that standpoint. Um, the main thing to consider is that uh, the more dilute your your water is, the lower your salinity. That's going to lower all of the the majors, minors, and traces are going to be less. And uh, concentration is a big factor on how available those elements are to either bacteria or to coral. Um, the higher the concentration, the less energy they're going to have to expend to to be able to bring those elements in. Um, so that's that's something to consider. You know, you're you're you know you're making those elements less available to um, you know to the system as a whole if you reduce salinity. Um, and likewise, if you you know are, are focusing on traces and getting those up to normal levels, but your salinity is low, then that means you've got deficiencies in in probably your your major elements, you know, uh, either sodium or, or chloride or um, you know potentially in some of the others. But uh, and that's you know that's also something to consider uh, that 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 may have its own consequences. Uh, so yeah, my my recommendation is always try to stay thirty five and thirty six. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, all right, Jan, I think we're going to get close to, uh, to wrapping this up. What, um, what does the future hold for you guys? Where are you guys going to, where do you, uh, where do you want to see you, uh, folks be in a, in a few years at this point? Um, well, you know, we, like I said, we got into this, um, out of a passion for the hobby and a desire to help people achieve really their goals and their, and their dreams and the hobby. And I mean, it's a, you know, I'm sure anybody would agree it's a fascinating and, and really it can be a really re rewarding ho uh, hobby to be in. And, uh, you know, I, I think everybody dreams to have, uh, you know, incredible growth and fantastic coloration and, and uh, you know, lots of diversity in their, you know, in their tanks. Um, you know, we really want to, you know, be a, um, uh, you know, facilitate that. Right. And that means listening to what our, our customers are asking for, understanding how, what they're doing with the tests, how they're using them. So we're, we're really looking to evolve our products and, and how we present the information and, and what products we offer based on the feedback we get from our, our customers. Um, that's, you know, that's what's going to help us achieve the goal of helping them. So we're, we really want to become more active um, with the community. We, want, we love hearing from our customers. We love getting feedback. We love knowing how they're using the results and what they're experiencing or, or if they're running into difficulties. Uh, so I really think I see us evolving um, you know, in a direction that um, is obviously towards quality and obviously towards being uh, uh, you know, assistance to the community, but also I think it's going to partially be determined by uh, um, how our customers use the product, what they run into, um, you know, what they're having trouble with. So we're looking forward to seeing how that uh, how that surfaces because uh, you know that's a it's a bit of an unknown and it kind of keeps it interesting for us too and and uh, keeps it exciting knowing that uh, there's a bit of an unknown to it. Uh, but uh, but overall, you know, we we really want to support the hobby. We want to support the industry. We want people to be successful. Uh, we want everyone to have a you know a gorgeous, uh, beautiful tank that uh, you know that meets their dreams, and, uh, and we want to see the, the industry grow and thrive. Cool, man. Well, listen, Gene, it was it was great having you on. I I, I know Paul, uh, the moderator, just put up the uh, the link to the website there, so if folks want to um, you know are interested in um, picking up some of these uh, kits, they can go visit that uh, that link, and uh, yeah. So, um, listen, I really, uh, really appreciate you taking the time there, Gene, to, to talk to us about, um, Reef Labs and, and, uh, you know, what you guys are all about and, and, uh, you know, thanks for uh, answering all my questions and all the viewers questions. I know there's, um, uh, there's, um, been a lot of, uh, questions in the chat. So yeah, folks, I think, uh, 
if you have any more questions for uh, for Gene, probably just follow a link in the uh, in the website to to get a hold of them. And uh, uh, Rob, upstate New York, thank you very much, man, for the uh, for the super chat. Great chat. Dollars towards a keyboard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you know it's bad when you can't read some of the letters on the keyboard. You know, it's kind of hard to see there. But I think the A is actually the, the actual A is gone on the uh, on the keyboard. So yeah, probably is time to uh, buy a new keyboard. <laughs> Monkey, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it, and uh, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to answer the questions and uh, you know help uh, help people get to know us better. So, really appreciate it. Thank cool. you. Cool. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, again, thanks, Gene. I also want to thank both uh, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for uh, sponsoring the live stream and supporting the show. I also want to thank all you folks out there for tuning in and the super chats. Thank you. Thank you very much. A, uh, another big thank you to Paul, the uh, moderator. Also want to let you know that all episodes of Wrapping with the Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Wrapping with the Reef Bum live stream will be on Thursday, September 29th at 5 p.m. This is 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, not 7 p.m. because I got a guest who's uh, on the other side of the, the world, um, Wesley Reeswick. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. He was uh, featured on Reef to Reef. It was a tank of the month. So uh, really cool reef and uh, should be another great show. If you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests on reefbum.com, go to the YouTube section. Until then, be safe out there and we'll see you next time. <laughs>